You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. As we fast approach Aspie's 2023 conference on deterrence and disruption, we kick off this week with a conversation between conference speakers Beck Shrimpton and Ross Babbage on military, political and economic strategy. They discuss the importance of net assessment to ally deterrence and defence strategy, and Ross's new book, The Next Major War, Can the US and its Allies Win Against China? All right, we have Ross Babbage joining us on the Aspie podcast today. Hello, Ross. Hi, Vic. Wonderful to have you here. Ross, you have uh, released a new book. It is called The Next Major War, Can the US and its Allies Win Against China? I commend this to anybody who is interested in understanding the current threat environment globally, but also particularly the implications for Australia. What I think is really special about what Ross has done in this book is is really bring together all of the relevant aspects of the Chinese way of thinking about war, which differs, in fact, in some ways significantly from our own, and there is danger in the mismatch and in not understanding how we see things differently. It also brings together where people tend to want to focus very much on either the economic competition or the potential military fight. You really bring everything together, the political, the economic, the military, the social. So, Ross, for a starting point, can I ask you why you wrote this book and and who's your intended audience? Well, thanks, Beck. I wrote the book really and did a lot of research behind it because I could see that there was big differences between the way the Chinese are planning to fight a major war in the Pacific. And they are not only planning, they're actually developing a lot of things with a lot of shape to them. They're substantially different to what the United States is doing in its own consideration about future contingencies in the Pacific and all the allies, really. We're really talking about chalk and cheese on the two sides. And we need to understand the Chinese position and the Chinese approach and the Chinese strategy and their capabilities and the mix of capabilities much better than we do at the moment. Uh, That's one reason. The second reason, to be brutally frank, is I asked around early in the piece about whether, in fact, this had already been done, that someone had tried to look hard at the two sides and the differences in their preparations and what a war might actually look like. You know, what would be the dimensions of this war? What would be the characteristics of it? What would be the the sort of main themes? And what would be the deciders too? And I said, surely this has been done. Uh, After all, I'm old enough to remember that a lot of this sort of stuff was done uh, by many people during the Cold War. But I was told that nothing quite like this had yet been done that uh, drew all the dimensions together, the political, the military, the economic, the social, the political warfare stuff, the whole bit together and did a sort of a, a, a net analysis or net assessment of, of the total picture. And so I received a lot of encouragement, though. People said, no, it doesn't exist at any level of classification. It should exist. If you're ready to have a go at it, that'd be fantastic. And so with that, and then there were some other reasons that were really just, you know, the importance of the work itself. This was something which was not just something that you might want to do on a as a holiday job or anything like that. This was something rather more serious than that. And it was really worth doing in its own right, even though it was going to be a lot of work. Was it satisfying to do? 
Yeah, I think so. It's yeah. been received ex- exceptionally well, yeah. and and including by people coming from quite different dimensions, uh, very senior people in the military, very senior people in everywhere from the White House down, uh, right through to senior economists and others. Yeah, they, they all see it, and they can all actually they're finding it very helpful, and the business community too. Very good. What what actually what have you heard from the business community? What has been some of that reaction? Well, there's been <laughs> there were some elements of business that I've been and some company boards in recent years I've been briefing on China and security issues. And, you know, this is really interesting because most allied governments, including the Australian government, successive Australian governments, have been cautious about talking to their publics very much about these issues. The truth is that the public, A, has a right to know. Frankly, I think they're underestimated about their capacity to cope with this sort of thing. And, and, and B, they really need to know. They need to know because they need to start thinking about what the implications for them are. And we're not really um, drawing them into the picture. So they have every right to know. Anyway, in briefing some of the, well, in fact, almost universally, the response is the same. The first, when you brief the boards of very big companies, their first reaction is, that's fascinating, but why haven't we been told? Right. Why didn't we know before? Mm. The next question is, what can we do to help? How, what should we be doing to fit in with, with with what obviously the country and the allies need to do? So that's very I, interesting and and positive. I would have thought yeah, very positive. And so there were some have had some major companies expressed interest when they pressed me a bit hard on what we were doing. Nearly everything that we've been doing has been at the unclassified level, so there's been no real problem in giving them the gist of it. And in some cases, they actually asked, boy, can you show us the chapter you're looking at on such and such? And so in a few cases, I was quite happy to do that. And on the condition that they gave me some comments back, which they did. They kept their side of the bargain. Um, That was really interesting because there were no real surprises. I think everyone realises that with a sense of unease, but they also realise they don't fully understand what the Chinese are really doing. Basically, you don't have to put any spin on it. You're just spelling out who said what. You know what they're actually doing, just the facts of the situation, and that's really what the book's all about. Yep. Then the lessons and the conclusions that, that that are appropriate really drop out pretty straight in a fairly straightforward way. Now, before we get to the central thesis of your book, which I really do want you to walk through, because it's a it's a beautifully structured book for me as a as a scholar of of strategy and someone who's really interested in understanding. The perspective of the other. I, I thought it was really nicely crafted. But again, before we get to the central thesis, can we go to a question on methodology, loosely defined, but how did you bring this together? Who was involved? What other sort of sources of mm-hmm. information, knowledge, expertise did you bring in to this? Because it is, you know, it really does canvas a huge number of, of aspects and it brings together, as I said before, things in a, in a holistic and a, and a different way to what we often see? Well, I guess the, the, the foundations really came from, in terms of the detail of what's in here, came from six or seven years now of working very closely to understand what's going on in Beijing, what's being said every day, what Xi Jinping said yesterday morning when he was at the number two engineering works in Wuhan, and what are the implications of that, right through to what the PLA did yesterday what the military are doing in their development programs, what other people are doing, where the economy is going and the problems, the serious problems, what the leadership is wrestling with in terms of domestic issues right across the scene. 
understanding that in depth over time provided a good foundation and building relationships with others who were working in the space, not only in Australia, but particularly in the United States and elsewhere, has been really helpful. And fortunately, I've been in the in the sort of strategic analytical game for all of my career, one way or another, in different roles. And it was easy for me to uh, seek help or seek advice or run ideas by people. And so initially, a lot of research, a lot of digging too on the specific issues, then asking for advice in, in on the domain, some of the domain issues, some of it I already knew, enough to draft up most of it. I could draft yeah. in a first cut. Yeah. But then... Some people were incredibly generous in terms of being prepared to have a look at stuff or, or to toss ideas around. And then we ran three closed workshops with um, senior people and sought views, mainly to test draft judgments, but also to brief and bring them, you know, bring them up to speed with what we were doing. And There was no pushback, of course, either here or in Washington from anyone. And then later on when we had the opportunity of getting the whole thing in, you know, pretty well together in a draft total book or manuscript, there was half a dozen really key people who were prepared to look at the whole thing and provide pretty well the whole thing and provide comment. And some of those people, I'm, I'm not going to name, some are named in mm-hmm. the forward of the, of the, of yes. the book. Yep. They're all leaders in the field yep. and they were incredibly generous. I'm glad to say they didn't find major faults or some of them had some additional things to suggest. Right. There were some very minor things that we pursued tried to straighten out some of the expression and clarify a few issues. Mm-hmm. They were incredibly generous and I, they remain, in fact, it was good in another way because when it came to actually publishing the book and then promoting it and getting people to understand what it is, in the United States, some extraordinary things happened. Some, some of the leaders in the field then said, can you give me some books? I'm going to Congress and I want to add it out to all the chairman of the, co- the relevant committees and do this, that and everything. So we've had people actually then picking it up and, and using it and, and pressing it on decision makers. Good sign of the, um, you're onto a good thing if people are actually are actually using it. And I do think one of the features of it that struck me was that it is very evidence-based. It is very factual. Mm. It is not full of emotion and mm. it's not full of bluster and it's not full of opinion. It is. Uh, it really is, is very factually based. All right, let's get to it. What is the central thesis of your book, Ross? Well, the central thesis, I guess there's, there's more than one, but the central thesis is that, look, the Chinese leadership is gearing up to have the option of conducting a major operation against Taiwan sometime in the next few years. It could be next week. It could be, it could be towards the end of the decade. And there are internal pressures pushing them their way. There are certainly external ones. And also there is pressure on Xi Jinping probably to do something earlier rather than later. That's one. Secondly, they're planning to fight a different – if they come to fight a war – it's going to be a different sort of war to the way the United States and its allies, almost all of us, have been thinking. It's not going to be a, a mirror image of Western military operations. There are many more domains going to be involved and and it's going to stress us because we're not prepared. We're not even prepared properly, really, in the military domain. But that's actually the good news. <laughs> like, there are other areas where we're much weaker yeah. and, and they're working very hard and they have the potential to cause us enormous trouble. Yeah. So we need to be much, much better prepared and understand the full dimensions of what uh, what they're planning to do. But Ross, you do talk significantly about the emphasis of Xi Jinping himself and the Chinese system on what we, you know, what we consider very much 
left of boom, very much left of, you know, what we in Western parlance call the grey zone. So we're really grappling with and and you know what you what you spell out is is some very serious sustained campaigning in different spheres of warfare than what we generally recognize and certainly what we talk about. So when you look at the DSR, yes it talks about statecraft, really focuses on on military deterrence, but you're talking about political and economic warfare, a lot of which is actually going on now and that is not your assessment that is in the words of Xi Jinping himself can you talk about how we recognize those things and and what do you do to address those kinds of persistent threats that are somewhat invisible to some of our nations and it's it's much easier to not see those than it is to see them well a, a fundamental sort of foundational element of the chinese approach is to weaken the opponent before you actually get to any sort of um, what the West would call fighting or, 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 or kinetic exchanges. And, and, and they're prepared to use almost any measure that you can think of to undermine, weaken, divide, subvert, corrupt their opponents. And they're actually working very actively today, have been for some time to do all this. And they're using all sorts of instruments to do it. So you see a lot of fake news. You see a lot of fake stories. You see a lot of manipulation in the media. You see a lot of uh, attempts to recruit people to the cause, including in the media, to argue or to so- soften their positions. You see also, of course, very intense cyber operations to mainly actually a lot of at the moment is not so much to bring systems down, but to penetrate and position so that in a crisis they can break things down or, or, or continue to have a rolling campaign of handicapping, kneecapping, if you like, many key systems in the West. And the overall goal of all this is to it's it's really historic in, in Chinese, you know, strategic culture. You know, it goes right back to Sun Tzu. That that is a whole idea of you don't go to the, you know, on the battlefield to the other guy is really weak and is about to fall over. And what they're trying to do is to weaken divide, subvert in advance. And so you see when you look at, for instance, the United States, look at the polarization. Uh, look at the various issues that are foremost in, in in the media right now in the United States. True in Australia too. Well, I can tell you that directly and indirectly, Chinese and sometimes Russian actors are very active in those spaces, particularly in social media and elsewhere, and are trying to whip this stuff up. So they'll turbocharge one side of the debate and then turbocharge the other and try and get people fighting against each other within the society. We're not wise to this, really. Most of our community is blind to it, not aware of it. There's no reason why we can't tell our people about it, yeah. and, and I think we should be doing a lot more of it. So this is its causing us a lot of problems, in not just in the sort of security sense if there were to be a, a major conflict, a military conflict, but it's weakening our societies anyway. And, it's for, and we're, we're being forced. I mean, for instance, some things – that in the energy area, for instance, and in other areas of industrial development and so on, they're pushing lines, sometimes quite extreme lines, and, and encouraging the perception in the public that this is really the majority view, uh, when it's probably not at all. And it's certainly not very necessarily very rational view, but nevertheless, it becomes you know, a really powerful force in the United States and in some other countries, including in Europe and here. So the problem really is that the consequence of all that is we're, we're weaker and we're weaker and not as prepared and we're not as unified either and focusing on the big issues 
we're focusing on a lot of you know brush fires and other things just to keep ourselves going. Meanwhile, they plan are putting in place ways of exploiting that more if it comes to a major crisis. Very important observations there. I think one one example that springs to mind as I listen to you to say those things is, of course, the AUKUS nuclear-powered mm-hmm. submarines and there are you know, rather hysterical cries out from the from the Chinese government about Australia and you know nuclear proliferation and how this is against any treaties that we've signed and you know it's not we've gone to to great pains of course to ensure that it's not meanwhile the greatest nuclear build up i think the the number of weapons developed in the last year single largest increase is is china's so really quite um disturbing that we can't sort of turn around and say hang on here's a bit of truth you know we we tend to to be silenced or to go on the defensive so easily don't we because we are worried about about being called either you know paranoid or you know the the fear the fear factor but one of these things that you that you talk to of course uh, in the end of your book without spoiling for, for anybody who's who's going to go and buy this and, and read it. You do identify five priorities and I we won't go through them all. We're addressing a couple, but two I think are really worth talking about here. One is strategic leadership. And, and I think that does go to how we talk to our to our publics and bring people along. Can you talk to to what's lacking on our side here and what we can do, what we can do now? And the other, the the fifth of your priorities is winning the political warfare struggle. How do we do that, Ross? These are big tasks, uh, and but I think um, there's some fundamental principles that are really critical to achieving progress, and especially on the strategic leadership. Uh, and I wouldn't want it, you know, anyone to believe that I'm not that I'm suggesting that we haven't made some progress. We have. I mean, I think the Western Allies and the Western Pacific are in a much better position than we were two years ago, and with our friends, not just allies. So there is some progress being made. Look, the biggest problem, I think, is most of the senior people in government and most of the ministers are being briefed and they understand the realities of what we're facing. What I think we need is them to realise rather more acutely two things. Firstly, that there is a serious risk that this could deteriorate very rapidly and we could be facing a major crisis and major conflict at pretty short notice and the public has not been brought into the tent to understand what they may face. I frankly think that's really inappropriate. I can understand why politicians are cautious about scaring people. Yes. But frankly, leaving them ignorant is not very smart. In fact, I think it's undemocratic also. So I'm not wanting to scare people, but I do think it's really important that ministers and others speak frankly on some of this stuff and most of it. The other thing is there's many other ways of telling the public. You don't have to have ministers saying it all. You don't have to have all everything in speeches in parliament or major reports out of government. That They all have a role, but there are other ways of doing it too. On how do we actually address the, you know, all these other things, like and particularly the, the penetration and, and the, the cyber operations and so on, there's obviously a lot of things happening in defensive modes in our relevant agencies mm-hmm. and building resilience in our society, particularly sure. in business. Yeah. A lot is being done there, and but we have more to do. Again, I come back to being more frank with the community. 
because my experience, uh, everything from bushfires, which I have been heavily involved with a few years back, I was yeah. astonished at the self-organisation that took place in local communities and the effectiveness of it. People did things I never thought they were capable of doing. I think in the sort of situation we're in, that we're talking about today, uh, with this um, potential major crisis, if we're frank with the nature of the problem, the sort of agencies that are operating against us, it's all public. It's just that we're not, you know, spelling it out for the public to fully understand. There's no real reason why people can't know and shouldn't know. They should know, and they should. There should be reasonable democratic discussions about what does it mean. What does it mean we should do? And I think the, the earlier we get into this at a community level, relevant organisations obviously have a role here. Uh, the better. And my personal experience is that the reaction of just about everybody who's briefed and just on the facts of what's going on, it's been very positive and very cooperative and wanting to roll up their sleeves and basically ask, well, how can we help make it work? Extraordinary, isn't it, how sometimes, you know, being being informed can actually be very empowering. Yeah. Uh, and you do really see an, an excellent response sometimes when, when you do take the leap of faith and, and, and trust the public to, to respond in the right way. Ross, I think we're nearly out of time, but congratulations on the book. And uh, look, thank you for coming in and sharing some thoughts here with us on the SB Podcast. Thanks, Beck. Great to be here. Shifting to a more domestic focus, Dr. John Coyne speaks to Peter Lowe about terrorist prisoners and the controversial tools used to assess their risk of reoffending. They discuss how this risk assessment compares with other crimes, such as child exploitation and extremely violent offences. Hi, I'm John Coyne, and today I'm joined by Peter Lowe, who is the Principal Consultant at Pronesis Consulting and Training. Peter, welcome to the ASPE podcast. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been a little while. Look, it has been. Um, and, you know, look, we're always great to have you to talk to and to write for our CT yearbook. For those who, for the first time, are listening in to Peter, Peter comes with an extensive background in terms of terrorist offenders and risk assessments. I'm going to hit it with a couple of questions and try to fit it in 12 minutes or less. But, Peter, you've just spent a fair bit of time over the last couple of months in Africa and in the Middle East. I guess, you know, what is the cutting edge observations in regards to offender management and risk assessments that you viewed during that time? Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, definitely. So I've been in Iraq. I'm, I'm currently in Kenya. And I guess I'm doing two very different projects in both of those countries. So here in Kenya, I'm, uh, I'm launching and delivering training for trainers in a curriculum for children's officers to identify and respond to risks of violent extremism for children. I think Interestingly, Kenya last year changed their Children's Act to include risk of harm for children that children's officers needed to respond to as being being exposed to violent extremist ideology or involved in violent extremist groups. I think that's pretty cutting edge. I'd love to see that happen in Australia. It is a risk of harm to children to expose them to that kind of ideology, those kinds of beliefs. And so children's officers are now learning how to identify children and families and respond in a preventative and divertive way so that we can stop the flow of young people getting involved in violent extremist groups. And my work in Iraq is focused on repatriation. So I'm working with the government of Iraq to repatriate the still 20 odd thousand Iraqi citizens in the northeast Syrian camps. And what I guess the important part for that, for my learning from that, is that it can actually be done. I mean, in Australia, we're talking about some 80 individuals and we're still stalling in our decision to bring them home. 
and Iraqis repatriating 20,000 and they're moving ahead at something like 250, you know, a month are returning and being both brought back into the country and then reintegrated into communities. <clears throat> it's not without difficulty, obviously, given the context in Iraq and the different kinds of harms that have been done, both by Islamic State and their affiliates and just generally in the country. But when the government has a will and a real intent to do it, it's clear and that it, that it is possible. So I guess my learning from that for our government is if you want to do it, you can. And so far they have had quite a lot of success doing it in a country as complicated as Iraq. So yeah, I think that's probably the biggest learning for me from that experience. Peter, you know, um, you touch on a few things there. And I, you know, I've talked about this in the past that there is a difference between preventing and countering violent extremism. And it seems what you're describing here is, is work in progress in both sides of that. I, I want to sort of draw you, you know, this year we, we did see the release of the Intelligence National Security Legislation Monitor's report in relation to terrorism legislation. Specifically, I, I guess I'm drawing your attention here to the continued detention orders and the report that the Home Affairs Department here in Australia had had commissioned in relation to Vera 2R and risk assessment. I guess goes the heart of, I guess, of repatriating people and making those Vera 2R assessments. And also in terms of protecting the community. You know, I'd be remiss not to say, well, here in Australia, we've concentrated on, of late in the media, on Ben Breaker's case or the case of Ben Breaker and his release. But, you know, we have 17 odd offenders who will be released over the next couple of years who are coming off being prosecuted and found guilty and serving their sentences for terrorism offences. I guess my, my question here is, is you know, how, as, a, as a person who regularly works in the field, as a person who has done train the trainer, but I guess more importantly has, has used Vera 2R and has assessed individuals. I mean, what's your response to the insulin report? And I guess what's your response to the criticism of Vera 2R? So I think they're two separate things that you're talking about. I think the insulin report, as you may know, I gave evidence to the to the public hearing of the of the insulin review into Division 105A matters. And I think the insulin report is fairly indicative of the current situation we find ourselves in. And don't forget I was around at the beginning of HATO, you know, and I, I, I provided the first assessment for talk um, for the first person to be considered under the HATO legislation. It was all thrown together very quickly. There's no doubt about that. And legislation is only as good as its first testing. You know, I think insulin made some fair and balanced recommendations around that. We, we don't have the same kind of predictive validity in the violent extremist terrorism space that we do in other areas of criminal justice. We just don't. We, we don't have the data set. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer. So the other part of that is the corner report, obviously. I'm a big believer and, and support Dr. Pressman in I don't really believe we want actuarial risk assessments in this space. Now, the court might want them for the purpose of consideration of Division 105A, but as a practitioner, what we know about terrorism and violent extremism is that it is so very individual and the pathways in and out are so very individual that to have an actuarial risk assessment would deny the individuality of each person's pathway and each person's risk factors. So as a practitioner, I find the Vera 2R is perfect for what I know that it does, and that's helped to guide my actual risk assessment. So the tool itself doesn't tell you the risk. It helps you understand what the risk assessment should be from your professional skills and knowledge. So it's limited by the knowledge and skills of the practitioner who's implementing it. 
you know, I think in the Ben Breaker case, it was tested. The practitioner who submitted the report for the prosecution admitted that she didn't understand ideology. So, I mean, I guess my question then is, how are you doing an assessment on someone who's ideologically motivated if you don't understand ideology? That's not a limitation of the risk assessment tool. That's a limitation of the practitioner. So I think it's understanding that these tools are not were not built for Division 105A matters. The Vera 2R was around long before Division 105A, and it was designed to help assess and understand the risk of an individual so you can apply the appropriate risk measures, whether that be that there is, you know, something that needs to happen in the threat space or whether we're looking at risk management and, you know, an actual intervention for diversion. So I think it's been a little bit confused. You know, I, I've read the corner report, um, make some interesting points. Uh, again, I say I'd be interested to see it peer reviewed. I'm not a researcher, so I'm interested by some of the limitations that the report itself says that it has in terms of its methodology. And, you know, I mean, in this space, peer review is how we decide whether research is actually useful and helpful. So let, let it go through that process now that it's been released to the public. And then let's see what happens. I mean, it, the tool is not actuarial. It's never claimed to be actuarial. In fact, it's very clear. And the courts have been advised in every single matter that the tool is not actuarial. So the court's not been misled by the fact that this tool is a silver bullet to understanding risk. The court knew that when they made their determinations based on it. But I think we see the nexus of two issues. Continuing detention legislation, which means depriving someone of their liberty post their sentence, for which we should actually have quite a high level and degree of certainty before we actually enter into that. And secondly, a tool that's designed to help us understand risk in the space to the best of the ability of understanding risk in the space. And I think those two things have come together quite uncomfortably. Yeah, I guess, you know, having come from an intelligence background, I'm, I'm more comfortable than most that Vera 2R and other similar assessments are really about estimative probability. And they are only as good as the qualifications of the individual who's using them. I guess the broader question here is, is those, and, and as you say, in the absence of, of another tool set though, how do we, and you know, government's um, number one priority is to protect its, its community and provide safety. We do use other assessments, and you know, your background in justice here is really, really important. We use other assessments for criminal offenders in the justice system for child exploitation and child offences, and for some particularly violent offences. And I wonder, you know, how do these two areas, how do these two areas, guess match up in your experience? So really, I mean, you know, the Vera 2 I would never be used in isolation anyway. It's always used in combination with other assessments which might be relevant for understanding a particular individual. So it may well be that someone has used violence and you also use some violence tools to understand the use of violence. So you would always use them in conjunction with other things that help aid your assessment, that help understand that individual. And that's really all they do. Tools help you understand an individual. That's really it. So... I think there's there's relevance because what we know about the profile, to use that word, of a terrorist offender is that they're really not the same. And so for some of them, it is actually more about criminal behaviour that's been caught up in an ideology. So general criminal offending tools will be quite relevant for assessing that, that, that particular individual. But we also know that for some people, it's actually much more ideologically belief-based motivated. And our criminal offending tools just don't help us understand that other than antisocial beliefs and attitudes. So it's kind of this really complicated situation where there is no one right way to assess a violent extremist or terrorist. It has to be 
a combination of understanding of the of the professional, of the practitioner around how, what's the presentation of this individual and what are the tools that are going to help me understand them a little bit better and then using those appropriate tools. So you've got to know the right tool to use, but you've also got to understand what tools are available to help you in the space as well. Now, Peter, if I flick back, that's you as a professional and you've done this for a long time. I often say, and I pay you the compliment, unlike many people working in the field, you've probably interviewed more convicted terrorists and people who have been radicalised than most people I have met professionally. How do we flick that back to the court and the primary responsibility of government? So, you know, I'm not going to draw you on the Ben Breaker case or specific cases. I guess the broader question here is then, I mean, we're talking about making assessments about people's future behaviour. You know, how do we balance that risk between these assessments and the uncertainty that goes with them versus the responsibility of government to protect society? Look, that's a great question. I think one of the complicating things in the space is that there there is no appetite for risk. There's no appetite for any level of risk, unlike anywhere else in the criminogenic space where we still have appetite for risk. We still have people who offend, get released, offend, get released, offend, get released. We accept that level of risk. We accept we can't predict human behaviour 100% in any form, anywhere but we're much more willing to accept it when we're thinking about someone who might rob again or even someone who might murder again. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. Terrorism has such a higher level of risk aversion. It is an interesting question. We do have the mechanisms in this country like no other country. Our terrorism laws are some of the toughest in the world, really, in terms of the, the mechanisms that are available to courts and to police and intelligence agencies to manage that risk. And so it's a matter of how do we do the most appropriate thing. And I do think, you know, there are some people whose risk means that that, that may not be able to be managed in the community. But we also have to think about all of the other mechanisms that are available to us in terms of extended supervision orders, the uh, AFP have control orders that they're able to use. We also know that we have some very good intelligence organisations that are able to monitor. And so we do have to think about the least restrictive measures possible because at the end of the day for me, if we just keep every convicted terrorist in jail forever, there's no opportunity for anyone to rehabilitate. What's the motivation for anyone to rehabilitate if there's no opportunity for them to reintegrate into society? And that sends a broader message that actually adds to a narrative that we're trying to defeat from terrorist and violent extremist groups. So it's unhelpful for us to just go down the pathway of being so risk averse that we completely detain everyone for the rest of their life in case they may do something. And the reality is that it's not just our convicted terrorism offenders who pose a risk. In fact, the larger risk comes from those we don't even know yet. So it's interesting to me that we're so concerned about people that we have an ability to know who they are and monitor to certain degrees, when really, I think if you were thinking about it from a realistic point of view, the people who pose the most risk and potentially threat are those who we don't even know about yet. So, so there's no opportunity to monitor or engage. Look, we've run out of time on this occasion. Um, Peter, thank <laughs> you very much for joining us for Policy, Guns and Money. I look forward to continuing this conversation. You know, a, a range of, of really informative points you've made today, but one sticks in my mind for me, which which really is this issue of balancing community safety, the the individual rights of of offenders, and these assessments. And and really, at the end of the day, you know, I sort of I guess there's an open question mark now where 
view, you know, some of these threat assessments and their validity is being questioned. Is it a better outcome? And I, it's an open question and possibly for the next time we catch up, which, you know, is it a better outcome um, that those who, who can be um, removed from Australia at the end of their sent, post-sentence are removed rather than being um, that very strict regime, as you pointed out? And I guess the second point is that I think this is, you know, our legal frameworks for dealing in terrorism, for dealing with terrorism, are extensive. Thank you very much, Peter. Let's catch up again soon. Thanks, John. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.